If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. We will get there eventually. This is going to be a little bit different than uh, a normal sermon in part of the fact just of what's going on in the life of our church. As has been reiterated, next week is our final Sunday here in this location, after which we will be borrowing a location for some period of time. And so I feel compelled, maybe for my own self, but hopefully for all of us, to sort of uh, process together what it means to be a church without a building. Um, I know that some of you have experienced this in the past. Some of you have have not. Um, But I want us to, to think about what the church really is. I want to remind us of what the church is um, so that we're strengthened to walk through these coming months and not just survive, but but, but hopefully thrive and to, to grow in this season. Um, and what I believe in part will sustain us, other than just the grace and the kindness of God, will be a strong theology, a strong understanding of what the church is. Do we really know what the church is? And if we know that, then that will help us to walk through these coming months well. So let me begin by asking this question. How do you, how do we as individuals define ourselves? If someone says to you, who are you? Uh, tell me about yourself. How do you answer that, that question? Um, if we're Christians, then a key part of identity, obviously, is our, our faith in Christ. Um, we sang that song, you're a good, good father, and I'm loved by you. That's who I am. I'm loved by God. That, that's a core part of my identity. We, we speak of those kinds of things. We're followers of Jesus. We're children of God. We're members of the body of Christ. Uh, there's other ways we're defined, less important ways. Uh, some of us are defined by our jobs, right? We're, by our vocation. So we answer that question, who are you, by saying, well, I'm a nurse, or I'm a doctor, or I work in sales, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a homemaker, or, I'm a pastor. Uh, for others, the question might be, well, I'm a student. I'm in kindergarten. I'm in second grade. I'm a senior in high school. I'm a seminary student. That sort of defines who we are. Another part of us may be defined by our family, and maybe our role within our family. So we say, I'm a child. I'm a mother. I'm a, I'm a father. I'm a grandparent. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. Or maybe your family name defines you to some extent. I grew up in a church where my grandparents had attended, and then my parents went, and then I went. And so there was an understanding in the church of who the Savakas were, for good or for worse, I guess. I don't know. Uh, But that shaped who I was. Maybe your ethnic family helps to define you. You would say, I'm Filipino, I'm Haitian, or I'm Colombian, or I'm Ilocano, or I'm African American, all these different things. We we take that on as, as who we are. We're also defined in part by our location. For the most part, I think the majority of us are not originally from Louisville. Uh, Some of us are, but uh, most of us did not grow up here, but we are all here now. And so to one degree or another, we are all Louisvillians, no matter what basketball team you root for. You are a Louisvillian to one degree or another. And some parts of our identity are always there. They are sort of unchanging characteristics that will always define us. Um, but sometimes something that we use to define us in a moment can, can sort of change. So we might move, and we come to a strange place, and we feel a little lost, and not just because we don't know where the grocery store is. We're just not sure. Something that was so core to who we were, where we lived, 
is now changed and we don't know who we are. Um, maybe you graduate from college or you graduate from high school and, and you're, you're not sure what's next in life. There's sort of an identity crisis of sorts about, well, who am I and what am I supposed to do? Maybe a, a loved one dies. And part of who you understood your identity to be, that, that changes because you don't feel like you are that person anymore. And when those things change, we, we struggle to know who we are. Part of us seems in some way to die, and while new parts are, are being born, it's still difficult to sort of piece together what is my identity, who am I, as these things change. So what about Grace Fellowship Church? Who are we? How do we define ourselves? I think that would be a good exercise for us, a good thing to think through, maybe even tonight before the meeting. Um, we could sit around the tables and talk and, and chat and think about what defines us as a church, what characterizes us, what's, what's unique about who we are. Uh, but I bring that question to us in part this morning is because when I talk about who we are as a church, to people who have never heard us of us, I say, well, I'm the pastor of Christ Fellowship Church. And when I begin to describe us, you know where I start? I start with location. <laughs> I don't start with location because that's one of the most important things about who we are, but it's an easy way to identify where we meet, the physical context in which we minister. So I say something like, well, I'm the pastor, I'm a member at Grace Fellowship Church. You know where the Costco is, we're across the street, four-story office building, we meet on the second floor. And there, that's usually how I begin. And our presence here on Bardstown Road is, is sort of part of who we are. It, it kind of defines us in, in some way, at least until next week. Uh, then meeting here, it doesn't become a part of who we are, it becomes a part of our history. Well, we used to meet over on Bardstown Road, across the street from the Costco, four-story office building. It's now a storage unit. <laughs> But uh, as we think about that, the, the New Testament does that too, doesn't it? It describes churches based on, on location, at least to some extent. Um, it may not refer to a specific address in a town, but it's interesting to note that, that churches are named by their location. So it's the church where? In Corinth. It's the, the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, and so on. Of course, they could say that in part because there was really only one church in that. So it's the church in Ephesus is all the believers in Ephesus. That's the church. Uh, one group of believers who gathered together and worshipped, maybe in a building, but probably most often in, in homes, like the church in Philippi was said to meet in Lydia's house. Interesting to think about that, just to imagine. Uh, but for us, we don't meet in someone's home, right? This is our home. This is this is our church. At least it has been for the past five and a half years. And so what do we do when this location is is gone? This piece of how we have defined ourselves. I'll tell you what I do. I struggle. That's hard. It kind of stinks. I mean, I get a little frustrated. I get a little sad. I get a little bit confused. I mourn the loss of our season in this place, and I think that's that's right. I wrestle a bit with a, a church identity crisis, if you will. How am I going to answer the question of, of who we are now? Who is Grace Fellowship Church? Are we still a church without a place to meet? Now, even if you have a very anemic and weak theology of the church, you're going to answer that question quickly and say, of course, we're still a church. Of course we're still a church. A church is not a building. A church is the people that have committed and covenanted together. That's what the church is. And that is so very true. 
It's so true that even Wikipedia, in listing the oldest churches in various places, makes a distinction between the oldest church building and the oldest continuously meeting congregation. Isn't that interesting? Even they understand that the church is not just the building, but it's the people that gather together. And Scripture, as far as I can tell, says very little about church buildings. I, I didn't do a thorough study, but as far as I can tell, I can't think of any place in the New Testament that speaks about a specific church building. Maybe in Revelation 2 or 3, but I think that's imagery. But instead, the church is, almost, is, is always thought of as, as the people of God, as God's people in a specific area, the, the local church. Of course, there's this other doctrine of the, the universal church, um, or the, the church even throughout the, the ages. We talked about this the past couple of weeks. Keith and Jake referenced the, the great cloud of witnesses of, of, of that even, even beyond the church throughout all time and, and history. When we look at Ephesians 5 and Revelation, they speak about this great gathering of the people of God. And, and in those passages, it uses the imagery of the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ is this reference to all of God's people throughout all ages. Everyone together, the redeemed and spotless bride united to her Savior, her husband, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.22 and 1 Corinthians 12 talk about the body of Christ, where Jesus is the head. And they there, when talking about the body, are speaking about God's people throughout all nations and all places. Ephesians 1.22 says this, that the Father put all things under His, under Jesus' feet, and gave Him as the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So we can speak about the church, the church with the capital C, meaning all of those who are God's people through faith in Jesus, regardless of location. This is the Catholic Church of the Apostles' Creed that we read earlier. Catholic with a small c, meaning universal. And we affirm that we believe in this invisible body, the bride of Christ. But beyond those passages that I mentioned, when the Bible speaks about the church, it is most often talking about local churches. That's the emphasis in the New Testament. Gatherings of individuals in a specific place who together confess their faith in Christ and their commitment to one another. Not the body of Christ, but bodies of Christ in local places. And these descriptions of, of the church are about people, and there's no mentions of buildings. If the church is a, a local gathering of believers, then there have there have been and there are countless churches without buildings. The first church formed in the book of Acts had no building. And churches to this very day are made up of people committed to Christ and one another who have neither a place that they own or that they rent. In fact, there's a whole movement movement of house churches. Um, not only in places where persecution makes it necessary, but even in the United States and in other areas, because it's simply adopted as a more effective way to do church together. That's not to say the buildings are bad. I'm not ragging on buildings. The church building, a, a regular meeting space, serves to support the activities that make the church the church. A building can be an anchor in a community, a place where people turn to uh, when they struggle to know who they are. I love old church buildings. Uh, in part because they're beautiful, but also because they, they stand as this reminder of our faith passed from generation to generation. There's a, a brick and a mortar place that reminds us of the faithfulness 
of God's people and of the truth of the gospel. On Monday, we were in Williamsburg, Virginia, and we attended a noon prayer service at Burton Parish Episcopal Church, who has gathered at that spot since 1674. Isn't that awesome? I love that. That's wonderful. Uh, and it's a building, but, but what's even more important is that they have been there as a congregation since that time period. So, of course, the church is, if it's not really a building, we could also conclude that there are church buildings where people gather weekly where there actually is not a church. The presence of a church building doesn't assume the presence of God's people. Because what makes a true church? That's the question I want to ask. All this going around introduction. What is a true church? I think Acts 2 lays it out for us as the first New Testament church forms. And I want to read that. And then I want to think about what a true church is and call us to realize that wherever we're at, if these things are true of us, then we are the church. So Acts 2, hopefully you know the story well. Um, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. He preaches boldly and calls people to repent and to believe. We see that. Let's pick it up in Acts 2, beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, we read about these folks there in Acts 2.42 and following. And throughout church history, people have used this passage to think about the marks of what a true church is. But we can look at these verses and we can sort of summarize what's happening there in the early church, what it was marked by, and gain some insight as to what makes a gathering of Christians a church. So let me give you three marks, and I'm, these are not original to me, though I, I changed the wording to maybe include a few other things within them. Um, but the first mark of a true church is the proclamation of the word. The proclamation of the word. We see that the early church was devoted, they were committed to the apostles' teaching. To the apostles, that they were explaining the Old Testament in light of Jesus, and to the teaching of Jesus that they had heard and then were telling to those that had gathered. They were committed to proclaiming the gospel to those who had turned and to those who had yet to turn, to Christ through faith and repentance. So we hear them 
telling throughout the, the book of Acts to anyone who will listen that it's through Jesus' death and resurrection and faith in that, that salvation and forgiveness and new life can be found. The proclamation of the word marked the first church, and it has been a part of every true church throughout history, the proclamation of the word. And the proclamation of the word is not just the proclamation of, of any word, but the, the word that says Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. It's a proclamation that has the gospel at its center, because Christ is the center of the church. The church is built not on Peter, but on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God, and that salvation is found in His name alone. A church that has a beautiful building, but proclaims words that don't witness to the finished work of Jesus, is not a true church. And so we're reminded that a church can exist without a building because it faithfully proclaims the word. A building simply gives us a place to consistently proclaim the word on Sundays. A place to store our chairs. It gives us a presence within a specific community to proclaim that gospel, to proclaim the word. That's one of the many reasons that we came here in the first place. Um, and maybe the biggest thing that we're kind of losing in this transition. Uh, rent was cheaper in the ba- basement of Beachwood Baptist Church, I'll tell you that. Uh, but we wanted a place to be in the community. We wanted to shine as a light, to proclaim the words of life. And so in some sense, that's part of what we lose. And yet, we're not called to tell the world, come and see, come over here and, and come to our place. But what did Jesus tell us to do? Go and tell. And so we certainly uh, can proclaim the message of the gospel to the lost here in this community without having a building here to invite folks to. And so building or not, we as a church need to be marked by the proclamation of the word. And if we are, and I pray that we always are, that we are a church. We also see that a church is marked second by the administration of the sacraments. If you don't like the word sacraments, you can say ordinances. Is whatever you want there. Administration of the ordinances or the sacraments. We see that the church from the very beginning baptized believers and broke bread together. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, hotly debated throughout church history, but still key marks of the true church. They are important to keep. Why? Because they are done in obedience to Christ. It's what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28. He says that we're to go and make disciples. That's that proclamation proclamation of the word. But what are we to do with those disciples? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then to teach them all things. Baptism is there. And Jesus commands his followers to observe the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him until he comes. And the church has done that. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about how often and how long that has been done throughout the years? But if we hold to these twin ordinances, we are obedient to Christ's command and we mark ourselves as the people of God, as those who find life through his death and resurrection, as those who live lives that are continually marked by his death and resurrection. And of course, all that we need to practice those things are sufficient water, some bread, some wine, some juice, and we can faithfully keep these commandments. No purchased or rented space are necessary. You don't need a baptismal. A river will do just fine or someone's backyard pool. Uh, These are foundational things, though, and they mark us as God's people. 
And so we find here that the proclamation of the word, the administration of the ordinances, these mark us as God's people. And third, the church is marked by being a holy community. A holy community. Proclamation of the word, administering of the sacraments, and a holy community. The picture here is, is so beautiful of these folks gathering together day by day, breaking bread together, having all things in common, selling items so that they could feed the poor. As people believe in Jesus and are baptized, they become a part of this new gathering, this, this church. They're, they're separated from others and they're joined uniquely to others who are following Christ. This is the idea of, of church membership, I think, is here whether stated or not, of a, of a covenant with, with one another, of a group of people committed to one another, accountable to one another. We could also point out that there's leadership in this community. There's people that are set apart to lead this group. It's a community with leaders. We could also talk about the place of church discipline. The reformers, in marking out their three marks of the church, made church discipline one of the key marks of a true church. Because church discipline speaks to this idea of a holy Community of people that you are a part of and responsible to. And there's responsibility that comes with being a covenant group of people. And so a church is marked by a commitment to one another. And even a submission to the authority that's in that community. And of course a commitment to one another doesn't need a building. Just as a marriage doesn't need a house. Two people can be committed to one another in marriage whether they have a roof over their head or not. And so we as a church can be committed and accountable to one another, whether we have a building or not. So, brothers and sisters, on October 2nd, we will not be allowed to meet in this place anymore. <laughs> and we will have no place that will be specifically our church meeting place. Our home will be temporary for a time. But know this, as we are faithful to proclaim the word, to practice the ordinances, to remain committed to one another as a holy community, we bear the marks of a true church. We are a church, even if we have no physical address, and we are no less of a church than those who do all these same things but have a spot on a street corner. We are just as much a church as any other church in this community. Now, under those three marks, maybe over them, maybe beside them, however you want to think about it. I want to encourage our hearts with two other things that I think set us apart as a church, as the people of God in this place and in this time. And the first is related to this idea of a holy community, and it's this. It's our love for one another. What makes us a church? Our love for one another. Side note, if I could go back and think about this sermon, I might say that another thing that sets us apart as a church is God's love for us. Of course, that's part of the universal church, but I, we love him because he first loved us, and we love one another because of God's love for us. So that's over this too, but our love for one another sets us apart. All three of these marks were important to Jesus, and he talks about them all, but it was love for one another that he said is the distinguishing mark of the Christian community. We see this in, in John 13. And this is not just any love, but it's a self-sacrificing love that is in fact modeled on his love for us. A love that led him all the way to death on our behalf. So after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he talks to them for a while. And in John 13, verse 34, he says these familiar words. 
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I love that, because we are not known as the disciples of Jesus throughout the world because we have buildings and because we have signs. We are known as God's people because we have love for one another. There's a love that exists between all believers, a love in the universal church, that a love for the universal church that calls us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ across the city and around the world. But we as Grace Fellowship Church are uniquely called to love one another. As far as I know, there were many Christians who moved into a new home yesterday. But there was only one family from our church that moved into a new home, and so that's why we were there, to help them load and unload a U-Haul. Because they are part of our community, and because we love them. There were many babies born to Christian parents on August 1st, as far as I know, uh, but I did not take any of them meals. <laughs> because they're not part of my community. I can love them, as a part of the body of Christ, but not in the same way that we love Jordan and Sarah and take meals to them, because there's a unique love that we have committed to amongst one another. And none of that dies when you walk out the door and close it for the last time, because we are still committed to one another. We are still going to love one another. This is still our covenant. Just part of it. We'll read it tonight, but let me remind you. It says, We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will work together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, remembering that we have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. So now awkwardly look at one another in the church, okay? And I'll say this, we are a church because as you look around, we love one another. We love everyone to a certain extent. We're called to love all. And we're called to love uniquely those that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we love in a unique and sacrificial way those that are a part of this church because we are bound in Christ and because we have made a commitment to one another. And that's a unique love. And this unique love for one another marks us as God's people united in this city at this time no matter where we proclaim the word or take the Lord's Supper or anything else. And one final thought on what makes us a church. And this is one to continue to meditate on, but it's the mark of the presence of God. The presence of God. And in some ways, this is necessary to say because we've messed up when we think about church buildings. And we think for some reason that God is more uniquely present in them. God's people have always been defined by the presence of God among them. So if you look at the Old Testament and the, the, the tabernacle and the temple and the Ark of the Covenant that was within them. 
Those things were all so important and so valued, not because they in themselves were of intrinsic value, but because they brought God's presence into the midst of his people. That's what was so important about those things. So when the ark was stolen, or the people were exiled, or the temple was destroyed, then the the Israelites longed, not just for the temple, but for the presence of God in those places, for God to be among them. But our church buildings, as New Testament Christians, are not temples. They are not unique places where God is more present. They may be a place where we are more present. Let me read you a quick quote from Frederick Buechner. He says, The whole earth is holy because God makes himself known on it, which means that in that sense, a church is no holier than any other place. God is not more in a church than he is anywhere else. But what makes a church holy in a special way is that we ourselves are more present in it. I like that. I think it's true. Buildings help us to be more present. But they also don't contain God's presence. The gathering of of God's people seems to, in a unique way though, invite God's presence amongst us. We, We find in the New Testament that the temple is no longer needed. Why? Because we are the temple. We are God's temple. He dwells in us, not in some location in Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit that comes, and we see that in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells each of us, but he also indwells us as God's people. Did you hear that in 1 Corinthians when when Ken read it? Again, let's think on this together, um, beyond just this time right here. But as he talks about the, Paul tells the church, he says, listen, the church is not a building, it's a building. Um, it's not a place like the temple, but it's a building that's built on the person of Jesus Christ, and the, he is the cornerstone, and it's built of people. And having expounded on that, he says in verse 16 of, of 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, do you not know that you are God's temple? Those yous are plural. He's speaking to the church. Do you not know as a church that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In his church. In some way, there's there's a mystery mystery here to me, but this makes us his people, his presence with us. And as we are committed to him and to one another, he is among us in a unique way. Almost like what he talks about in in, um, Matthew 18 with um, speaking of church discipline, where that, that the, the verse where he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. It's not that God is not present in our midst, that he's not indwelling us unless there's at least two people in the room, but rather that there is the unique authority of Christ and the unique blessing of God when his people are gathered together. And none of that ceases when we move out of this place next week, because God's presence is not uniquely in this physical space. It's uniquely among us as God's people. So what sets us apart? The proclamation of the word, administering of the sacraments, talked about being a holy community, about the love that we have for one another that makes us a church, and about the presence of God among us. That's who we are, and no building is necessary. You know this little poem? Maybe kids, you know this one where you put your hands together like this? 
And we say what? What's the first line? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. See all the people? <laughs> Close the doors. Hear them pray. Open the doors. And they all go away. Then we all know that. And that's probably why we think the church is a building. Here is the church with its steeple. Okay? Let me give you a, a new one, okay? I came up with this late last night, so it's not going to be as remem- memorable, and I don't, I don't have any great motions for it, but <laughs> here's, here's my best shot. Here's the church. It's made of the people, not of the doors, the chairs, or the steeple. And even when we all go away, love and God's presence continually stay. I think there is something to mourn as we close the doors next week. I think we should be honest about that. But here's what we're not mourning. We are not mourning the death of Grace Fellowship Church. Right? In fact, I think that the loss of this space could ignite in us a deeper desire and a deeper understanding of what it really means to be the church. A gathering of people that's committed to God's word. It's committed to the ordinances of Christ, to being a holy community, and to being a loving community. And knowing that the Lord our God is with us wherever we go.